This educational activity was developed in partnership between Cortuad and the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research, supported by an independent medical education grant from the Rare Bone Disease Consortium, represented by Alexion, AstraZeneca Rare Disease, by Ibsen and by Kiwakiran, who had no input into selection of topics or speakers. Hello and welcome to this postcast covering the highlights of SBMR 2022 conference. My name is Ines Alves. I am a patient advocate and representative uh, based in Portugal. My patient organization is called Ando Portugal, the National Organization for Skeletal Dysplasia, Rare Bone Conditions, and involved in numerous initiatives at the European international level as well. I'm joined today by Tracy Hart. Tracy, can you please introduce yourself? Sure, thank you, Ines. I'm Tracy Hart. I'm the CEO of the Osteogenesis Imperfecta Foundation. We are located here in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. I'm also a member of the Rare Bone Disease Alliance, and the OIF is the administrative lead of the RBDA, as we call ourselves. So it's really great to be here. Thank you, and very excited with this podcast as well. As patient advocates, our focus today lies on the patient perspectives. Tracy, which presentations from the conference did you find most interesting and impactful regarding this point? Well, Ines, that was very difficult because there were some wonderful abstracts and wonderful information presented, but we have focused on three today, engaging diverse communities in rare bone disease research, the IMPACT survey, which is I-M-P-A-C-T survey, provides unique insights into the experiences of adults with osteogenesis imperfective through self-reported data, and novel hybrid silicon lipid nanoparticles as non-viral vectors for delivering biologicals intended to address skeletal rare diseases. So we have something from the patient advocacy perspective, a survey, some data collection, and also some very interesting science. Thank you. And that's really, uh, it's the highest point of our selection of presentations because we aim to tackle very broad, important and relevant information from the beginning of research until it's delivered to, to people that mostly need innovative medicines and also care. So regarding the first presentation led by Michelle Davis from IFOPA, which are the highlights of this presentation that called your attention? So I, I think the title in Engaging Diverse Communities really focused, Michelle focused on her experiences with IFOPA, and really she presented to us how important it was to engage communities for research by providing diverse opportunities for engagement. So she talked about things like her family gatherings, her national meetings, her virtual programming, I think she really focused on, on showing the audience ways that, you know, to engage patients, not just getting that one email that says a clinical trial is happening, but how do we meet patients where they are and, and how can we communicate with them? And she, she did that in multiple languages too, which I thought was very important. So, you know, the engagement really focused on strong communication within, you know, the patient community, but also with her industry partners as well. And she really focused on how important, good, and appropriate education is within her community. So when her patients, as she explained, were ready for clinical trials, they were very educated 
about what was going to happen. So I thought that was that was really great. But the diversity, I think the way she shared it was offering those diverse opportunities for people to engage. I think that although it was a specific rare bone disease being approached, the content was totally transversal to many other rare bone diseases communities. And um, Michelle shared a lot of um, the challenges that also um, very small patient organizations as uh, international organizations as IFOPA are uh, challenged with. And it was really interesting to see that as an international organization, they totally need to be focusing on getting to the highest number of people they can get to improve their care, but translations, and because we are talking about a global impact of an organization, needs to be uh, up to date. And the highest challenge that was really catchy for me on IFOPA, that again can be translated to many other patient organizations, is that um, from the 8,000 people that may have uh, FOP, fibrodysplasia significans progressiva, they only know about 1,000, which is tremendously less than the number that we would aim to have as the less people that know about their condition, the worst their life scenario will be. So aiming to know more and more people in continents that are less mentioned as Asia and Africa, it's really an important work. And it was really inspirational to see all the work that IFOPA has been leading so far. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it really highlighted the disadvantage that some disorders, disease patient communities are at when they don't have a strong patient advocacy group working with them. And it's really, you know, our responsibility as rare bone disease advocates to to help where we can and to share resources and to make sure people have shared resources if we can for spreading information. So I thought that really hit me as well. And one of the, the topics that I already mentioned about translation, it's very real at the side of the globe that I live in Europe, where something is not enough to be just in English. We have numerous uh, languages, and it's essential to get translated, to get to the uh, highest number of people. And we are very used to work in English, which is an international language and uh, allow us to work together. But definitely, um, most people, most families are not talking in English. And we, as organizations dedicated to people with rare bone conditions, need definitely to work further on these aspects. Thank you so much, Tracy. Let's take the second selection that we did. So the next work is the impact survey, which covered an astonishing number of 66 countries and over 2,000 patients with osteogenesis imperfecta. You are an expert in OI. How do these results of the impact survey affect or can affect lives of people that have OI? And um, let us know if you are aware of how many cases are correctly diagnosed after these results. Sure. So this is um, this is something that's very near and dear to, to my heart, the impact survey, because I worked on this project. The lead author is Lena Lande Wecker from TRS National Resource Center for Rare Disorders in Norway. So, you know, right from the beginning, this global survey was led by 
people from all over the world, clinicians, patient representatives, and others from all over the world. So it really was a, a global committee. And you could see the partnership between the patients and clinicians too, if you look at the other authors from all over the world. So I think what we found here is that, you know, issues are global regardless of a health system. And for us, I think we knew that, but it was really great to have, you know, over 2000 people, adults telling us about their experiences, regardless of where they lived in the world, regardless of their health system. The issue that we see, and maybe we'll see more as data comes out, is care is not consistent, which is a a real issue for us. But if you look at the survey, you know, it was, as you said, it was put out in multiple languages. So we had 66 countries respond. We were looking at the clinical, humanistic, and economic impact of OI on the OI community. We saw some of the things that we knew, but it was really good to have this in writing and people telling us that most adults self-report having issues with pain and fatigue. Those are all issues that, you know, the OI community is working on, the clinical community and the research community as well. So the survey was, you know, it was self-reported. It's sample data, so more information will be coming out. But again, I think it shows us globally that we are so connected and our issues are very much the same regardless of where you live. I think we would find this in other disorders as well. I don't know what you think about that, Ines. Oh, totally. I think both of these presentations, presentations and poster, have been very relevant on on showing that the challenges are um, not as different as that. And this work, again, showed clearly that we have underrepresentation of continents as South America, Asia, and Africa. And this is really um, something that we all together need to start working more deeply. There are individuals that are, they are families, they are also very interested clinicians in these parts of the globe that need to be involved in networks to ameliorate the information for these individuals, to improve and communicate better with the patient organizations that are available on this side of the globe. But definitely we need to push forward more work on this. And one of the things I really liked this work was the perception that um, each person had from their OI It was not solely for them to point out which type of OI do you have. Do you want to comment on this? Yes, absolutely. That's uh, Thank you for bringing that up. So, you know, 26% of the folks that responded to the survey had not been tested. They don't know their mutation. So they are self-identifying as either having mild, moderate, or severe OI. I think that happens in other disorders as well when you have this variable kind of disorder where you could possibly self-identify as having severe OI because you have hearing loss and that affects your quality of life. And if you're looking strictly at, you know, the science of OI and fractures, you're missing all those other aspects of a life with OI. And self-identifying is very important when you're looking at treatments and, you know, and, and possible treatments as well. So you're looking at things like missed work hours, ability to care for yourself, social life. It all depends on your perception of yourself as well. And so I thought that was interesting when we had quite a few people, these are all adults that do not know their genetic mutation, but they they are self-identifying as mild, moderate, or severe. Yeah, definitely. So 
let's move on to the to the next and last. And Ines, I'm going to let you take most of this, but I learned so much. But as, as indicated before, we also selected a potentially very impactful work in the molecular and basic research area. And as can you tell us all more about this the novel hybrid silicon lipid nanoparticles poster? How do they work and what rare bone diseases can they target as a new potential treatment? Definitely. I have to say that this abstract quickly caught my attention because it is something that translates us in a deep environment of research towards uh, having a product at the end. And also, it approached a vast number of skeletal dysplasia, like they could definitely tackle not just one, but different skeletal dysplasia. And this was skeletal dysplasia, rare bone conditions. And this was really, really interesting. Knowing in a deeper uh, version what was this work about, this led me to see and to recognize how small interfering RNA and our genetical parts of our body can be a target medicine with a lot of potential to treat many diseases much beyond rare bone diseases when we are currently lacking so many therapeutic options. It's always very important to remember that there are more than 7,000 rare diseases and only 95% have, are still ha- hoping for having a treatment. 5% is definitely not enough. And with this new technology on uh, small interfering RNA and also these uh, silicon lipid nanoparticles, this is an opportunity to bring innovation to this field. The small interfering RNA have potential to work on genetic uh, disorders as uh, rare bone and majority of the rare bone conditions. It's also a very precise mechanism, and I've seen a lot of uh, new information about this on regarding gen silencing, and also the possibility of uh, this one single small interfering RNA to treat several different rare diseases. So it was really catchy. And uh, going too deep to this work that was conducted by academics in Aquila University and also in partnership with a company. And I have to highlight this. We are always pushing for collaboration. And this is a kind of collaboration. It's really important to see research being conducted with a focus to progress towards outcomes that are realistic and viable. And seeing this collaboration taking place uh, was really interesting. So this research was conducted on autosomic dominant osteoporosis mouse model. And the Aquila research team developed a small interfemur RNA to rec- able to recognize um, the mo- mutant gene that induces this autosomic uh, osteopetrosis. And this, this condition, uh, it's very rare bone condition, has one mutated gene and other that is normal. So this small interferon RNA can recognize the mutant gene and is able to interrupt the mechanism that produces a mutant protein, which optimally can leave uh, the normal gene intact, which is good. So it's not creating a bad mechanism as a positive mechanism, not interfering with the normal part of the genetics. So this allows to be formed a normal protein 
that can reestablish the physiological condition and hopefully cure uh, the disease in this mouse model. So this is already published in a paper that is available. And one of the things that is really interesting is that uh, although we are in this stage of uh, running tests in, in mouse models, the goal is to progress to human and the company that is collaborating with Aquila University as this nanoparticles that can be in fact used in humans. And the idea of the nanoparticles is that they can protect this small interfering RNA that is the, the treatment from being degraded by the natural mechanisms of the body. And applying this technology can in fact produce a new environment of treatments and develop new strategies to deliver medicines, which is a genetic medicine. So these nanoparticles can be called a biocourier, and it has um, a very interesting potential to be applied to numerous other rare bone diseases and beyond rare bone. And we are really looking forward to see um, progression of uh, this research and seeing the team evolving in innovation and results on this matter. So this poster was really exciting to read and I really look forward to see how fast they progress, but the results above all they can obtain with this new technology. I was going to ask you that, Inez, when do you think such a treatment could be made available? I mean, do they have a timeline? Yeah, it's not uh, exact science, although science is what we are talking here about. It's not exact when uh, an available treatment can exist. And this is one of the main issues that um, patient organizations and, and patients and families struggle with, to be very fair, is uh, the time frame that research takes in order to be delivered. And this translational aspect is uh, the ultimate goal of research, yet we have to be very aware as patient advocates and uh, leading important communication between patients, academics, healthcare professionals, and, and families. It, it's really stressing the, um, the importance of research and that it may not be as fast as we would like to, Research is an attempt and failed process, and it's much more driven in a way that resources are not wasted. Still, we have to wait a lot of years. And if we consider that this research has been the first paper has been published in 2019, and it's now in, in good progression and maybe tackling different rare bone diseases in, in the new future, and hopefully, and that uh, can progress to an innovative medicine in the uh, medicines agencies. We are dealing with many years ahead, but if results appear, all the work has been relevant and mostly because we are capable to see this collaboration uh, between academics, between biotech companies, and also patient organizations willing to push forward uh, with perspectives and sharing their needs and making sure that what is delivered in years from now will be of use for, for people.
Yeah. And I, and I also think what you just did a, a beautiful job summarizing the science was to make sure that we communicate this information to our, our patient communities in lay language. And, you know, so they understand what it means potentially to them. So, and you just did a fantastic job doing this. So totally. And um, I have to say that one of the major work that we have it's beyond dissemination, of course, is making sure that scientific communication reach to people and reach people in a manner that is um, not increasing over expectation and is clear. Um, because people that are early diagnosed are willing to get a treatment tomorrow. People that have been diagnosed for many years are aware that treatments do not appear when we clap our fingers, but that the intervention of people with rare diseases with um, patient organizations is absolutely critical and essential to progress towards a good end. Uh, but you're totally right. Communication is absolutely key. Well, I think we've discussed some very interesting new findings today and talked about some really great programs and surveys and, and science. Would you like to summarize our, our key points in this? Well, it was a, a selection that I think it was relevant. We presented patient organizations' work, how essential and relevant it is. We shared about collaboration between patient organizations, academia, and also the support of industry. We have to be very aware that industry is leading and supporting uh, many of the research that is being currently conducted. And without industry, we would not have any of this very reduced percentage of treatments today is available and we're aiming for more. And we see now a different approach for delivering innovative medicines, genetical approach, a small interfering RNA with nanoparticles, with silicone. It's fantastic to see all the evolution that we have been observing and collaborating with in the past few years. And hopefully we'll see much more innovation coming across in the future years. So we have come to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much, Tracy, for having this interesting discussion together. I hope that all uh, the listeners also appreciate our conversation. Thank you so much. And as certainly my pleasure. And as you said, we also thank all our listeners and encourage them to explore two further podcasts from this highlights of ASBMR 2022 series. This podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education and by the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research. Please visit courtoed.com and asbmr.org for more information.